The following program is paid for by Rudy Wealth Management. Good morning and welcome to Paul Rudy's On the Money here on News Talk 1493.9 FM. You're invited to join the program by calling 217-356-9397 or send a text on the Castle Heating and Cooling text line 217-351-5357. Opinions and views expressed in this program are those of the host and guests and not necessarily those of the station. And now, On the Money, with your host, Paul Rudy. Well, good morning, everybody. I guess we had a little miscommunication. Yeah, you can go ahead and and introduce everything. Okay, sorry, everybody, for the confusion. I wasn't very good at updating David. I'm down in sunny Dallas, Texas, visiting with my fifth grandchild and fifth grandson, if you can imagine, Paul and uh, Paul Jack Rudy. So he was born, everybody's healthy, and it is sunny, and it is hot down here in Dallas. I have a, I had a joke. I said, if uh, people from Texas die and go to H-E double hockey sticks, they better bring a jacket, because I think it might be cooler there. Um, and Fred, is Fred with us today? I'm here. Uh, doc, I have Dr. Fred Gertz with us. Uh, sorry, I'm driving blind here. It's good to have Fred on board. And we have certified financial planner professionals David Rudy and Ryan Repko, who work with me at Rudy Wealth Management. You can call us at 217-356-9397. I wouldn't be surprised if we get some calls today with all the stock market recession or talk of recession. Uh, you can also text us on the Capital Heating and Cooling text line at 217-351-5357. Of course, past performance is no guarantee of future results. You should always talk to your own advisor before you do anything. You don't want to just listen to a radio show and go do something. So, And once again, we're always here really trying to prompt better questions for our listeners so that they can talk to their advisors in a more helpful fashion. And thanks to Blake Landa for <laughs> getting us all rigged so I could do it from down there in Texas. And Fred, unlike the state of Illinois, who just lost their richest person in Illinois, Ken Griffin, and that was kind of preceded by Boeing's announcement. They're moving from their headquarters from Illinois to uh, at least their Chicago uh, headquarters to uh, Virginia, I think. And Caterpillar, uh, they're also moving. And I can't remember which state they're moving to, but a more tax-friendly state. But I tell you, every time I come down here to Texas, um, it's literally in a continuous boom state. There are new apartment buildings that weren't here you know, uh, a year ago when I was here. And is this something we ought to be concerned about in Illinois when you start, you know, losing these major companies? And when it kind of gets your attention when you lose your largest, potentially largest taxpayer, or certainly the richest person in Illinois. Um, so we take much meaning in that? Well, certainly it's a psychological uh, problem. And, uh, so sort of highlights the the issues that Illinois has in terms of actual loss of jobs. It's relatively minor. And Ken Griffin is a special case, being a a multi billionaire. Supposedly the he was the richest person in Illinois. I don't know whether he would be the richest person in Florida or not. But anyway, there's a huge amount of loss personally in terms of his uh, tax payments. But to be honest, uh, the damage has been done gradually over a period of time. Uh, Caterpillar, uh, several years ago, moved their executives from Peoria to Chicago to be closer to O'Hare. But their manufacturing has been spread worldwide for many years. Uh, Boeing was a little bit different. Boeing never had any substantial presence here uh, in terms of manufacturing, but it did have the the headquarters there because of, uh, I think, the access to O'Hare. So, again, those are not going to be major job losses, but it is a kind of pattern that we have to have to be concerned with. But again, most gains and losses are not uh, dramatic things where you open a new factory or a factory closes. There are thousands and thousands of jobs that are created and destroyed all the time. And the, the key thing is to be ahead to have more created than destroyed. So this is a kind of a bad sign or signal, but it's not uh, devastating in itself. And I don't think billionaires are much different than normal people. Uh, when you see the number one cat leave, uh, you, 
you know, you wonder if the other billionaires are going to say, well, he's a pretty smart guy. I wonder what he sees that maybe we don't see. Maybe we ought to start thinking about it. Anyway, I'm not going to dwell on that, but I thought it was interesting, and I know other billionaires that have left the state of Illinois and put their tax revenues with them or their tax payments with them, and it would seem to me that these people probably pay some pretty hefty taxes. Yeah, the, the good news, Bob, Bob, the good news is that uh, it's going to reduce income inequality in Illinois. <laughs> <laughs> I really hadn't thought of that, Fred. You beat me to it. I was reading an article because, you know, there's so much talk right now. Are we in a recession already? Are we going into a recession? Is it going to be like 2008, 2009? Is it going to be a more, more mild one like the early 90s or 2000? Uh, I was reading Brian Westbury, and uh, he still thinks that uh, we're, we're not in a recession. Uh, and we certainly don't think we'll get two consecutive quarters of negative growth, which he cites as a rule of thumb for a recession. We've talked that it's not so much the rule anymore, but it still sort of is. But he says he believes a recession is coming, but there, we're not in one yet. Um, he says, obviously, inflation is taking a huge bite out of people's earnings, but the debate about whether we're in a recession should be about real economic pain, not academic academic style semantics. Then he goes on to say, basically, maybe some of this is even political, the debate, uh, because, you know, it's pretty well known that if there's a recession, uh, you know, people kind of chomping at the bit, you know, because it hurts the party of the incumbent president. Uh, but, and, and finally, he says, uh, he's kind of looking for a, Recession, and I really admire the guy. He's, he's really a good, great economist, so I, I tend to pay attention to him. So that means recession starting in late 2023 or 2024, not now. Um, and then we're going to talk about this further in the show, but you know that has implications for stocks. And you know, one of the things is stocks tend to bottom in recessions, and they kind of sniff it out before the recovery, before uh, a lot of the data you know, announces that the recession's over. What's your take on all this, Fred? Well, it's a very, uh, not surprisingly, uh, we've said this time and time again, this is a very unusual situation caused by um, originally uh, originally the panic and more recently maybe excessive uh, uh, stimulus kind of policies. But I've never seen a situation uh, like this where uh, there's considerable consensus about a recession, but the recession isn't here and as you said, it may not come for months or even a year or two. So uh, Jamie Dimon uh, said that it's like uh, waiting for a hurricane. The weather's fine. Uh, everything's pretty good. But there's a hurricane coming. It may or may not hit, but you still have to take uh, preparation. So it's going to be an unusual situation because it's very seldom you have uh, a, a long-term warning like this about a recession. So people are going to take all kinds of actions in the interim. And you might expect that to lessen some of the some of the consequences if you expect it in terms of inventories and, and things of that sort. So again, um, I wouldn't be surprised if we have a recession. Again, we've changed our opinion here over the last six months or so. Um, going back six months or a year, it was uh, temporary inflation that would eventually diminish uh, no particular problem of, in terms of the economy, in terms of a recession. Now, Inflation is more embedded. We have to figure out a way to reduce inflationary expectations, which I think the Fed is doing. And we now have the specter of the of the um, recession. So it's a, a much different world. The one thing I think which is unfortunately different, uh, this is not a financial crisis. It's a, a typical kind of recession. As I said last time, I've been uh, reading the book by Ben Bernanke about the, he calls it monetary policy in the 21st century. And he makes the distinction between something called um, macro prudential policy, which is to avoid uh, crisis like we had in 2007 to 2009 versus macro stabilizing policy. And basically, we're not in the macro prudential concern right now. There's not a lot of concern about the the uh, financial system collapsing. Most of it is simply the old-fashioned kind of uh, downturn, and how do we try to moderate that? I was kind of interested, uh, you know, when it comes to inflation. Uh, I came across an interesting article because, uh, you know, at first, I think even including ourselves, we thought that maybe a part of inflation was transitory. And then that kind of seemed to disappear. Uh, people kind of cast that aside, but uh, Fund Strat head of research, Tom Lee, who, I, again, another person that I, 
I somewhat pay attention to. I never invest because of what a person like Tom uh, Lee says. But he said, it says, some analysts, this was in Yahoo today, some analysts begun to explore the idea that inflation may moderate in coming months. And Tom Lee went on to say, it increasingly looks like markets mistook the bullwhip effect, which I had never heard of, of supply chain for secular inflation. Says the bullwhip effect is roughly the tendency of business to over or underestimate the amount of inventory they need relative to consumer demand. This is past year, retailers overestimated and overordered. And he thinks, you know, companies are going to want to trim supply and, and things like that and kind of get in the sense that this part of this might be transitory. Right. Do you, do you have any thoughts on that? Well, I think that's clear, but uh, what now, I think – uh, a lot of macro uh, economists who uh, make predictions think that there is going to be a, a stabilization uh, moving back from 8% down to maybe 4 or, or less over the next several months, but that's not back to 2%. So there's still some inflationary expectations built in. So I think there is going to be uh, clearly a reduction in inflation over the next, uh, say, nine months or so, but it's not going to go back down to the a 2% level, and the question is whether the Fed wants to drive it down there and get rid of the, the inflationary expectations. They truly have to tighten to do that, to yeah. get it down to 2%. That would seem clear to me, and uh, they seem like they're willing to do it. Um, but it certainly, And it strikes me that kind of like the late 70s, uh, you know, normally the Fed will tighten you know, when inflation starts rising above two and a half, three percent, it seems like when you look at in the past. But they were really late in the late seventies, and it looks like by the time they really started increasing interest rates, we had already had eight in, uh, eight percent inflation. Um, but finally, on this, he said already uh, prices for metals, commodities, and energy, all raw materials in the supply chain, have fallen sharply from recent peaks. West, te- West Texas Intermediate Crude Futures are on track to post the first monthly decline since November. So a little more talk about, well, maybe some of this is transitory. Maybe we're going to find that out. Um, we will see. Meanwhile, we've been in, we've entered, sort of exited so far, uh, the bear market. The bear market is generally accepted as the 20% decline, the broad market. We achieved that. It was I'm a little blurry, but it might have been the week before last. Uh, I'm not sure if, and during our last show, if we had already entered it or not, we were close. We've had some recovery, but I've done some, and you guys might want to talk about this, Dave and Ryan, if you want. I, I, I you know, done some research on this, and it looks like it's when you add it all up, the average bear market, which we've entered, has lasted a year and then taken nearly two more years to break even. But Ben Carlson wrote uh, in his blog. Now that we're in a bear market, how much longer do bear markets last once stocks are already down 20%? Now, I do want to preface this. It's going to do what it's going to do, and it's largely irrelevant or should be irrelevant to investors' plans, whether uh, it's normal or not. Uh, but he goes on to say that the good news is here that seven of the past 12 bear markets have bottomed in 46 days or less. Once the 20% level was breached, five out of well, we're over in a month or less. So it looks like we have some time either way. I think, you know, people, I want to, I guess, warn people, uh, or at least give them a heads up, that when you get into these bear markets, um, they really try to break your spirit. Um, and the last few bear markets have been more, of you know, really steep, really fast, but then the recoveries were really equally fast. So I don't, I'm not in the prediction business, but it strikes me that I think, and if people like Brian Westbury are right, and we go into a recession in late 2023, 2024, early, which I think is plausible, it suggests to me that we probably have some frustrating times ahead of us as investors. Um, you know, I, I don't, you, are you guys getting much concern from clients? Uh, much chatter from clients at all? I would say, you know, overall, not a lot of questions from clients or concerns. And the ones that have called or emailed, it's not that they were distraught or really, really nervous. It was just, hey, I I just 
kind of curious how my financial plan's doing or, you know, I got one that was, do, do we need to be worried yet? You know, just kind of not, like I said, not overly concerned, but just kind of wondering, okay, where are we now that the market's down, you know, at, at that point, maybe 20% or so from its peak. Um, so it's more just wondering how they're doing. Um, and then kind of the question that I've been getting as far as specific questions is really related to what you just talked about, which is, well, is it going to fall further from here or how long is it going to take to recover, to get back to where we were? And the tough part is, I mean, the honest answer to both of those questions is, well, we don't know. Um, but it is interesting seeing some of those data points that you mentioned and just seeing averages. But one thing that stuck out to me was just how huge the range is around those averages. So you can't just bank on the average either. Like I was looking, if I scroll to the top of that Ben Carlson article that you mentioned, if you look at March of 2020, essentially when it bottomed, it only took six months to go back to breaking even. And that was after a 33, basically a 34% decline. But then if you look at 1973, 1974, it took 46 months <laughs> to get back to the peak. Right. And so I think what I've been telling people is, look, the honest answer is we don't know. It could recover really quickly like we did in March of 2020, or it could be one of those worst case kind of grindy scenarios like you mentioned. And I think the most important thing is to be psychologically prepared for the worst, not that you're betting on it or ex necessarily expecting it, but just be psychologically prepared for that possibility so that if it does show up, you're not going to do anything that's harmful to your plan or, or get overly emotional and react. Um, you're going to hopefully st stick with your plan because you are psychologically prepared for that possibility. Yeah. I think that's the greatest thing. And, you know, go ahead. Oh, Go ahead, Brian. Sorry. I was gonna say, I think that's the greatest thing that that anybody can do is just have that kind of that forewarning. It's it's not the prediction business. And like when you were, you know, s citing some of those stats from that Ben Carlson article, I was saying, hmm, to myself, that's interesting, but it's it's almost irrelevant. It's like you know, it's forty six days to the you know to the end of the from the 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 low point. And I thought, okay, that doesn't mean anything for this one or the next one or the previous one. All it means is that's a, a stat, an average. And it shouldn't be anything you should exercise any um, choices or decisions on, but it just gives you information. You say, okay, now what? Do I still need to spend my money that I need in retirement? Do I still need to save? Am I, am I still working? Do I still continue to put money into my 401k or do I have somebody you know, possibly pulled out? I know some people have done that, uh, talking with clients who have friends that are not working with a financial advisor. In this exact uh, market environment, they've stopped contributing to their 401ks. And I think that's kind of like the big discussion is like, what do you do during these times? Do you run to safety like some of these people are that I've that I've come to hear about? Do you stay the course? And for the folks that have a financial plan, they probably have a pretty defined path that they know that they're going towards. But you feel for people right now who are going this alone as probably half of uh, people are without having a financial advisor. They're, they're reacting to maybe the article they read by Ben Carlson or they're reacting to somebody that is on TV or the radio. And they're just doing reactionary measures and not, you know, they're kind of just like a squirrel. As they catch a shiny object, they run to that one and then they go to the next one. And there's no structure uh, that keeps them going in one direction towards retirement or towards whatever their goals may be. So I feel for that group of people. Um, you can't do anything with that. a lot of those stats. It's just, hmm, that's interesting data. Yeah, exactly. And I like in, in that article he, he mentioned, he's like, if you look at any sort of, you know, issue and look back at historical data, he's like, you can find historical data that will make you feel a lot better. Yeah, exactly. And you can find historical data that will make you feel a lot worse. Yep. So it's like, yeah, if you go and you look and you see some of these really quick recoveries, that's going to make you feel better. Like, oh, it could recover really quickly. But then if you look at the, some of these where it took three, four years to mm -hmm. get back to where you were at your peak, you know, that's going to make, <laughs> make you not feel quite as optimistic. Well, well one of the implications, though, guys, is, you know, I, I have this view, and I think you guys share it, that, you know, bear markets and lower stock prices are basically the market enticement mechanism to get investors to buy. In other words, it resets prices to levels where the expected returns are sufficiently high enough that the stock market stops going down because the returns. And when you get to the math, okay, so we were down peak to valley, let's say 24%. Well, now to get back to even, you're going to go up somewhere around 
And so, obviously, if it happened 46 days, which I don't think any of us anticipate, but one never knows. I mean, that's pretty powerful return in 46 days. But suppose it takes a year. That means you will have earned 30%. Or if you do anything irrational, like get out and try to wait till things look better, you might miss the 30% annual return over a one-year period. And if it takes two years, maybe it's 14 or 15% a year. Or if it takes three, okay, maybe it's, it's 9 or 10% a year. The whole point is when stock prices are down, the expected returns are rising. And it means just to get back to even are some powerful returns. And don't you think one of the risks of constantly kind of reacting to current events versus continuously acting upon a plan is there's a tendency for investors to miss those very powerful returns. Mm-hmm. I was talking with a couple of my neighbors. This was back in 2020, and I was reminded of this conversation just recently by this one of these neighbors. He said, you know, it's funny. We were talking about in 2020, real wealth is created during declines. Like true long-term wealth can be truly created during declines if you do the right things, or it can be com- possibly permanently eliminated or destroyed depending on which decisions you make. So for someone who's pulling out of their investments during a decline after it's already happened, you may have permanently lost money that you can never recover. For other folks, you could use that kind of same decline event and flip it on its head and say, I can keep my money invested, maybe pour more money into it, maybe change my allocation. If you're young enough, you know, not drawing on those dollars yet towards more stock exposure and level up. Not saying this is what anyone should do individually, but these are just kind of like some levers that you can pull during these times of of decline events that can actually generate wealth maybe over periods of generations. Right. Dr. Gertz? Yeah, I think we, we all come from the same place in a sense, but uh, if you're trying to beat the market, the fact is all these things that we know now are already built into market prices. So if you had a secret uh, revelation a year ago, maybe you could have sold and made some money, but now it's basically too late to play the the game of uh, getting in and getting out. You may be right. It may go up or may go down, but the point is, uh, we don't know, when they, and you don't know about it. So the best thing is just to stick to your plan. Mm-hmm. And I've always That's felt like... not very good odds when, when you consider the average decline in a bear market's 30%. So we've already gone 24% through this one. So, I mean, now you're talking about potentially trying to miss the last, the last 6% down, uh, you know, of pain where the reality, the bigger risk is missing that 30% increase just mm-hmm. to get back to even. And that's basically what I was going to say and what I always remind people of is, okay, they're worried. Well, what if it falls further from here? It's like, okay, well, so what if it does? Let's say it falls further from here. You stick with your plan, your portfolio. You temporarily see your prices go down. You stay the course. Eventually, it's going to recover. If you don't believe the market's eventually going to recover, you shouldn't have been invested in the first place. So no real long-term damage done if you follow that course of action. But let's say you try to get out because you're worried about that decline. Now you're exposing yourself to that risk of a permanent loss. So it's like by getting out, you're trading off the risk of a temporary decline that does no long damage. And in exchange, you're picking up the risk of permanently missing out on investment returns on the upside. Like To me, that's a bigger risk than the risk of, well, the market might fall further from here. Yep. And it's, I think it's human nature that's just, we'll never break this cycle. I mean, I think as a young advisor, you think, oh, you know, we've studied this. This seems pretty simple and straightforward. And yet any, any decline event that comes back up, we get the same question seemingly without, you know, change. You know, is this time different? You know, should I do something now? This, you know, this seems to be one of those, those market events that's different. And everyone backfills with logic. Don't you agree, Dave? Like, oh, this is the reason why we're seeing this, and this is why it's different. This is why Ryan or David or Paul, we need to do something this time. Right, and they're going to point to a number of things that are happening in the world, and like Dr. Gertz said, well, all of those things that that client is bringing up, everyone else knows about in the world, and they're, you know, the stock market prices today already reflect all of those things. So going forward, that's really not helpful information. Right. But people don't realize that. And it I takes think. basically a surprise, doesn't it, Dave? I mean, things that move the market are, by their very nature, Unknown. things that weren't anticipated and things that surprise people. Yeah, or the way I, I actually talked to a client yesterday and had a similar discussion, and the question was, you know, well, are things going to get better from here? Are they going to get worse from here? 
And I said it ultimately comes down to, if you look at stock prices today, it's essentially the aggregate of investor expectations. So it's everything we know today, but then also kind of the best guess in aggregate of all these people and what they're willing to pay. It gives you a price that says, this is kind of how we expect the future to play out. And then what moves the price is, well, does the future play out better than what people currently expect, or does it play out worse than what people currently expect? And if it ends up better than what we currently expect, you'd see the market go up. If it's worse than what we currently expect, the market would go down. But if all of the negative things that we kind of know about and expect just come to fruition and exactly match expectations, really there's not going to be any material move because that's already reflected in the current prices today. So that's what trips people up. I mean, I it's weird. I kind of I remember a test I took in college, and the example was like, could a company report poor earnings and see a stock price increase or something? It was something along those lines, and it tripped a lot of people up. They're like, no, the stock price would go down after a bad earnings report. And I just wrote, well, yes, it could go up if people were already expecting a worse earnings report than the one that came out. So. A lot of it comes down to, you know, well, what's already in the price or what do we already expect? And then how do things play out? So negative things can happen and the market can go up and it really, really confuses people when that happens. But it's because maybe it's bad, so, but it's not as bad as what we thought. Well, it's certainly a lot of people stressed out about a lot of things now. You got the market down, prices are up for a lot of the things people want to buy or need to buy. Interest rates are rising. That certainly makes buying a home confusing. Uh, you know, then that now when so many people talking about a recession is imminent, whether it is or isn't, now people start stressing out of, you know, about how they're feeling about their job. Um, that's really where, and I know this probably sounds like this one giant commercial, but that's where having a plan for how to invest, uh, is so important because that's the plan. If you just said the definition of a plan is, hey, um, we are prepared for times like this when the market quickly falls. I think that's kind of the essence of, of why it's so important to have that plan. And, and frankly, when you look at, and again, it probably sounds like one giant info commercial, uh, but it's not, my, it's not really what I'm attempting to do. But when you have even the experts that create these rules that people have sort of followed for 30 or 40 years, like Bill Binion's 44% uh, rule, and then he gets on TV and in the print and says, well, I no longer follow that rule because I'm afraid it won't work. Shows you the dilemma, the emotional dilemma, all just by our being human uh, in a way we're hardwired or maybe wetwired uh, to, to deal with these types of times. And, and I think that is the value of having that independent advisor that's willing or more importantly, not willing to let you do what you want to do when maybe the best thing to do is to do nothing. But we really don't have to do nothing, do we, guys? I mean, there are things, and Ryan, you kind of hit on to it, about in some ways you could take situations. Uh, I mean, these market declines are inevitable, so it's, you know, make, it would only make sense to anticipate them. But I think a lot of the way a lot of advisors talk, and I don't think they necessarily mean it, they act as if, well, you just don't do anything. And that's not the case. There are ways to create further wealth if you're smart about it, I think. Um, and I'd like us to talk a little bit about them. Ryan talked about some of them uh, last uh, last show. Uh, I think we got the tax loss harvesting, and we can always re you know kind of refresh that one. But... You know, we're doing, a, there's a lot of things advisors are doing, and I know you guys are doing them. You guys want to talk a little bit about some of the way you approach times like these? Sure. So we, we did talk about tax loss harvesting last week, so I, won't, I don't want to dwell on that this week other than to say that it's a way for you to swap out of one investment for something that's very similar in a taxable brokerage account. You book an immediate loss so that it offsets your, your income potentially for the year or gains in your investment account. Um, and then you're still participating in the market. You're not going to cash. You're not going uh, to bonds. You're just presumably in, well, you could swap one bond fund for another bond fund, but you're not having to put your money on the sideline is the point I'm making while uh, still being able to take a nice tax advantage. Uh, other options are maybe like a Roth conversion um, or maybe possibly considering uh, a change in allocation if, it, if it's a decision that's made for like permanency and not as kind of like, I don't know what we say, like a, 
market timing in disguise kind of scenario where you say, well, I'm going to go from 50% stocks up to 60%, but then at the next uh, moment of peril, I'm going to change back to a different allocation. That's that's not what we're suggesting as an option, but rather looking at maybe uh, your your entire investment time horizon, your rest of your life, or maybe if you're planning for your kids or grandkids and looking at multiple generations saying, what is the purpose of the money? Where is it ultimately going to be going? Maybe how could I enhance my uh, investments or make choices now that will have greater enhancements for my generations down the road? Maybe even for some I'd never get to meet. Um, and those are the kinds of discussions you have. But it's it's not making a, a short-term decision in isolation, but rather taking a long view um, and maybe what your desires are as an individual investor. So that reminds me well, Dave, of you were. Oh. Yeah, I was going to say, Dave, you called me, was it yesterday, the day before, or with a question of, uh, and then I want this kind of lead into the Roth conversion and talk a little bit about that, but then your question was, hey, Dad, what do you think? Are we better off doing the tax loss harvesting or the Roth conversion? Which one should we do, or do we do both? So let's talk about why it might be sensible to think about uh, you know, doing some Roth conversions and what a Roth conversion is and why you would do them. Well, I think most of the time it would make sense to do a Roth conversion when the market's down if you were probably planning on doing it anyways throughout the year. So typically when you want to do a Roth conversion is if your taxable income is quite a bit lower in this current year than you expect it to be in the future. So for example, what often happens in our world when we're dealing with retirees is they may be in a much lower tax bracket early in retirement before they've claimed Social Security, before they have required minimum distributions from their IRAs, and maybe they're withdrawing from a taxable brokerage account. So you can have very wealthy people that have very low taxable income on their tax return. So what you can do in those situations is say, okay, well, I'm going to do a Roth conversion, move money from my traditional IRA to a Roth IRA, pay tax now at maybe the 10 or 12% ordinary income tax bracket. And by doing that, I might avoid paying, you know, 22% or even, you know, maybe 32% down the road when I have all of our social security income streams kicking in and maybe very large required minimum distributions down the road. So it's, it's purely a matter of paying taxes when your tax is the lowest. Now, often in practice, what we've done is We've done our Roth conversions near the end of the year just because it makes calculations more precise. We know what capital gains and dividends and interest have been received in a client's portfolio, so we can be a little more precise. But when the market's down a whole lot like this, you know, it might make sense to pull the trigger while the market's down. For the same amount of dollars you move over into your Roth IRA, you're going to be moving more shares of your investment holdings. And it's likely that, you know, after a large market decline, expected returns are a little bit higher going forward. So when the market does recover, you're capturing that recovery in a an account where the recovery happens completely tax free. You get all of that recovery, so to speak. And there's no so particular you, uh, there's no particular right, reason right. you couldn't do both though. Right. Tax harvesting and Roth really don't interfere too much with each other. Exactly. Right? So um, capital gain harvesting I didn't get into, but if you fall in, essentially, if you fall in the 12% ordinary income tax bracket, that pretty much matches up with a 0% capital gains tax bracket, which just means even if you realize capital gains, they're going to be taxed at 0% if you fall within that bracket. So the decision of which one to do really comes down to the specifics of the case, where your tax bracket is now, and how much higher it's going to be in the future. But often it's it's not going to be crystal clear. I mean, there's so many unknowns as far as how tax rates might change in the future. And like Dr. Gertz mentioned, it's not it's not either or. So you can do both, mm-hmm. um, and you just have to be careful of making sure that again you stay within a certain tax bracket threshold. Yeah, and I think the one thing that's also at least worthy of mentioning is let's say you do intend to only max out for a Roth conversion up to let's call it the 12% tax bracket, and your calculations aren't 100% precise, and you convert some dollars out of your traditional IRA into your Roth IRA that trickle over into the next tax bracket up, what's called the 22% tax bracket. It doesn't retroactively apply that 22% tax bracket to all those conversion dollars. It's only those those dollars over that, that hump of the 12% that are now uh, attributed to the 22% rate. 
So it's not like this doomsday scenario where it's all or none, where you've gone either all at 12 or now it's all categorized at 22. I think sometimes that can be con- confused. It's only those marginal dollars over that would be attributed to that 22% rate. So in the end, you're trying to avoid it, but it's not a it's not an all or none situation. It's not horrible. Exactly. What, what about the... Are there any other issues you need to think about uh, that it might trigger higher Medicare, for example? Yeah, that that is one where you do need to be extra extra careful to not go over that threshold because if you go $1 over that threshold, you're going to go into that higher Medicare premium bracket. Yep. So this is where I think it's really important for us to list the disclosure of you should talk to an accountant or your financial advisor before you do this. And even if you're working with a financial advisor, I mean, we often run this by our clients' accountants just to make sure that we're not missing anything. You know, every now and then people have weird quirky issues in their taxes that, you know, an accountant sees every single year when they're preparing the return. So right. you don't want to necessarily just unilaterally do these things. You want to make sure you get professional guidance from an accountant. Yeah. And what, I, what also complicates matters with, with Medicare is the way Medicare is going to be essentially billed to you or whatever you pay is going to be based on your income from two years prior. So if you do a conversion this year, it's not going to show up in next year's Medicare payment and how much you're paying, but rather two years out. So this this time differential can also be confusing. Uh, so you might say, oh, I had I had really no impact from doing a Roth conversion because it hasn't been taken into account to your Medicare premiums yet until that period arises two years later. So you know, for anyone who's considering these things, you can also start thinking ahead and say, well, if I know I'm going to be on Medicare in a certain time at age 65, for example, maybe I do some Roth conversions earlier in life because they will have maybe at 62, for example, and I'm not claiming um, Medicare until 65. You're going to be outside of that two-year look-back window. And you have a little time where you might be able to do higher conversions if you wanted to, especially if you're looking at your your taxable income potentially being in higher tax brackets, 32% or higher um, if you're a wealthier individual at the end of your life, or if you just go from a very nice household, joint household of two people having good incomes to maybe pensions, uh, and then one person passes away, and now that single individual is in that tax torpedo situation where they get bumped up to an extremely high tax bracket relative to what they were in before as a joint, the joint household. So it just gives you some awareness as to how these things play out when you do these kinds of conversions. So we had a couple, what, we, have a, a te- we have a text and an email. So I'm going to read the text first. And I'll be, I think this one's pretty straightforward, but I'll see what you guys say. So they said, who's a good person to talk to um, in regard to figuring out ways to pay the least amount of capital gains tax on selling a home that you flipped? It was owned for just over eight years. Do I talk to an accountant, a lawyer? And that was the question. So I would lean towards an accountant in this situation, for sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, so you just want to find an accountant that you trust. And, you know, I, I don't know, you know, if there are accountants that specialize in real estate transactions in town. There may be. So you could even research that, you know, accountants that work with a lot of, you know, maybe real estate professionals or people who flip houses and try to find someone who really, really knows the nitty-gritty details of that. Um But that should be pretty straightforward. I'd talk to an accountant. And then the email, and this is actually a great one. It's an example of the types of questions that come up during market declines and I think where people sometimes overcomplicate things. Um, But it says, for those who must take required minimum distributions, what should the strategy be in a falling market? Anyone have a specific take? I can answer it as well, kind of my take on it. Yeah. Well, what's your take? So my take is I really don't think it changes anything with the market being down. So I think some of it depends, you know, if you're going to take this money out and spend it or if you're going to just reinvest it. So a lot of times people think, oh, I have this required minimum distribution. That means I have to remove it from my investment portfolio entirely. And that's not necessarily the case. It just means the IRS wants you to move it out of your IRA or your pre-tax retirement account so they can get their tax revenue on it. So what you can do if you don't necessarily need that money or you're worried about the market being down, you move the money from your IRA into, let's say, a taxable brokerage account, and then you just immediately reinvest it. So you can be out of the market for maybe a day or two. Not that big of a deal. Mm -hmm. Um, The other thing you could do, I mean, this year, if you wanted to and you're worried about even being out of the market for a day or two right now, I don't think that's something to be concerned about. You can always wait till the end of the year to do it and see. Maybe the market 
is higher and you'll just feel better <laughs> doing it then. But yeah. then you run the risk. I mean, the market could be lower. But again, I, w- I wouldn't really pay any attention to what the market's doing. Yep. That, that was going to be my it's, answer, it's, too. It's, it's, go ahead, Brian. And, and I was going to say the reason being is the, a client asked me this same question just an hour ago. And I said, well, let me ask you, do you have any, like, needs that you need to be doing around your home to fix up your home, any bills that have gone unpaid, anything that you have like a dollar, like like a string attached to that dollar? And the client says no. And I said, well, then in that case, if you have no real need for it, it's there's no rush or urgency for you to pull that out just because the market is where we are right now. It's a snapshot in time. It may be better or maybe worse in the future, but there's no urgency to do anything now or no strategy you need to do just because the market's down. Yeah. And I would I wouldn't like prevent not, you from taking one or either. the other. Yeah, and and the amount is, al- is already fixed. The amount is the January first, isn't it? So it doesn't make any difference about how much you have to take out. That's already determined. Exactly. Yeah, that was that's based on your age, and then it's based on your December thirty first balance last year. So yeah, I mean, at some point during the year, you're going to have to take this money. But again, if you if you don't need it for spending, you just go ahead and reinvest it. And if you need it for spending, I mean, and you're literally going to take it out, again, I wouldn't stress about it as long as it's a reasonable amount that you withdraw. I yeah, think the one thing you could say is, okay, well, assuming I'm not 100% invested in stocks, chances are right now your stock allocation is a little bit lower relative to where it was early in the year. So you probably should be selling from the bond portion of your portfolio anyways. And sometimes that psychologically helps people. Yeah. Also, if you don't itemize and you make charitable contributions uh, and have an IRA, this is a chance to basically do it tax-free, which is really a good deal. Yeah, exactly. So you can make a qualified charitable distribution um, if you're wanting to essentially minimize taxes and you don't need that money. And, and so if, you're, if you're planning to do it anyway, you might as well do it out of the, uh, uh, the qualified yeah. account. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I – I've noticed that's particularly helpful. A lot of times people make really small charitable distributions throughout the year and they're just writing a check here and there. Then they got to keep track of it and it probably they're probably still um, taking the standard deduction so they're not necessarily getting any sort of tax benefit from it. And for people like that, you can literally set up, at least at Charles Schwab, a check writing on your IRA where you can get a checkbook that's tied to your IRA and you can still just write a $50 check, hundred like there's no minimum amount, and it's just going to come straight out of your IRA. And then you do just want to make sure that you report that as a tax-free uh, distribution on your tax return. Um, but, yeah, that's, that's one particular use case that I've noticed is particularly when you want to make that qualified charitable distribution versus what people are often doing. And you can't do that until you've reached the age of 70 and a half. So not everybody can do this, but at 70 and a half, you can make these qualified charitable distributions. It used to be tied to the RMD age at 70 and a half, but then RMD age, the required minimum distribution jumped to 72, and that number for a qualified charitable distribution didn't jump with it. So you have one more nuance to keep track of, I think, for some people. For sure. And what do you guys uh, think about, you know, you got my probably two emails so far in the last couple of months saying, hey, guys, if uh, you have any people that you're dollar-cost averaging in, let's speed it up. Have you been doing any of that? Do you listen to Dad? <laughs> I, so I, I have been doing some of that because, frankly, dollar-cost averaging, objectively, we know it's likely going to end up costing clients money when you choose to invest money in increments over a period of time chances are you're going to miss out on some returns. But then if you're following that strategy just because psychologically people can't invest all of their money at once in one big lump sum, and you get treated with a big market decline, it's like, oh, this is kind of the best case scenario for people Mm -hmm. who are dollar cost averaging. And again, we might as well, if this is kind of what we're, we're worried about, that's why we have most of our money in bonds or cash right now. Let's go ahead and just expedite that dollar cost averaging process and take advantage of the fact that we literally got what we were worried about, and let's just, again, take advantage of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's one more of those um, options that you have available to you to potentially flip a decline in your favor. Um, not everybody's going to have one, right? Not everybody's going to have this lump sum of money that maybe they got as a payout from somewhere. Um, some people might get it in the form of uh, a pension payout. Others may have a um, an inheritance 
where they receive money and the thought of saying, well, mom and dad worked so hard for, you know, this money and here I just got, let's call it a $100,000 inheritance I wasn't counting on. And then no sooner do you invest it than you see a market decline. It does psychologically help folks to say, what if we invested in, you know, piecemeal on like a monthly basis for six, eight, 12 months, whatever it may be. And then it doesn't feel as bad if you do get that decline, right? And I think you have to recognize too, like the, you could do that, make an extra contribution or something like that, mm-hmm. and the market could fall further. And that's why I still, I don't think it's time to, or it's ever necessarily a good idea to say, oh, I was dollar cost averaging, we get hit with a market to- decline, let's dump it all in now. It's like, okay, but you still have the chance that it could fall mm-hmm. substantially further from here in those really extreme events. And that's what you were worried about. So it's not like we can say for sure the coast is clear. So typically when we do this, it's just, hey, maybe we make an extra month's contribu- contribution this month. Do, do small amounts. So, again, I mean, the reason you were dollar-cost averaging in the first place is because a client expressed concern over, you know, a near-term market decline right after investing the money. That doesn't necessarily go away entirely. So I right. think you still want to maintain some sort of dollar cost averaging schedule. And again, just recognize that no matter what, there's always a possibility the market could fall. I mean, you could finish your dollar cost averaging schedule that you planned on, and then the market could go into a big decline right after that. That's why that that risk never really goes away uh, of a temporary decline. I think the best thing anyone could do if they are employing dollar cost averaging and then decide to speed up, for example, like we're talking about, is write down in advance kind of like what your framework or rules might be and say, if I see a decline, what would trigger me to go outside of what I've been doing in a regular payment like clockwork every month? What would have to happen before I put in an extra payment? So that way you, you know, you, you stick to a set of rules that maybe you decide is appropriate for you. So you don't, you know, blow yourself up as Paul will sometimes say on the radio. I like that idea. There's also the other side of dollar cost averaging. So some people suggested in the uh, financial, uh, not the financial crisis, but the COVID crisis, don't sell out, sell 5% this month, 5% next month. Again, that's not a good strategy in the long run, but it's better than going all the way in immediately. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's, it's just another example of how sometimes doing something that on paper might be suboptimal, but it's worse than the alternative of trying to force someone to follow this, quote, optimal strategy that they're not going to stick with and they're going to bail on. It's like you could have this perfectly optimal investment strategy, but if you don't stick with it, it's not going to it's not going to actually benefit you. It's going to end up being a disaster. Right. I I would never advise anyone in our practice to sell 5 percent this month and 5 percent next month. Obviously, that's not something we believe in. But when I look at someone who's doing this their own, if that selling 5 percent keeps the other dollars invested, I say, well, the overall big picture was a win. Then you know what? that's okay. Not something I would have done personally or for the clients I work with, but that was better off than you going to cash. Right. Or I've seen even a smaller version of that is normally if the market falls a whole bunch, people say, oh, you should rebalance your portfolio. So if you had a target of, you know, half stocks, half bonds, and now you're at 45% or 42% stocks, they'd say, oh, you should sell some of your bonds and bring your stocks back up to 50% of your portfolio. But another option you have if people just really can't handle that and are just struggling to even stay the course is say, okay, well, let's just keep things where we are now. And then if if we have retired clients, for example, we'll just spend the bonds down over time and and gradually you're going to get back in tolerance. And technically, that's probably not what you should do. But again, it's better than the alternative of someone panicking and and selling out. Yeah. It's always this delicate balance between optimal and behavioral. For sure. And there's, well, there's there so many no instances optimal. like that. Yep. Yeah, yeah uh, there is no optimal. Great point. Yeah, you'll know optimal it, it, in I hindsight. Like how, after after everything's happened, yeah. you'll look back and you can see, okay, this would have been the perfect strategy. Yep. I think, you know, actually I think that's really important for people is to accept that you're not going to time things absolutely perfectly. Like the chances of that are basically zero. Mm-hmm. So just accept that. Come up with a reasonable strategy and implement it and accept the results for what they are. That kind of leads me, you know, I, always, I love Morgan Howell, the way he writes, the collaborative fund. It kind of almost, it, I think this encapsulates it well. It says, the most important investing question is not what are your highest returns I can earn, it's what are the best returns I can sustain for the longest period of time. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of wisdom in that. In other words, it's saying, you know, don't overreach and don't, don't, don't chase 
the highest returns because most people can't put up with what it takes to actually harvest those returns because they can't stick with it. I mean, how many times has Amazon or Netflix stock you know, declined by 75%? A bunch. Now, most people cannot sit through a 75 or a 90% decline and hold on. And then they miss the ultimate gains they were after in the first place. So I think that makes a lot of sense. So a lot of what we're talking about and a lot of the things when, you know, the guys and I sit around and just talk about client issues and kind of just theories, it's more about you just have to come up with a sensible uh, solutions and, and, and ideas and strategies. And I think those are mostly born out of a really well-thought-out plan, which a well-thought-out plan doesn't mean you've thought of everything because uh, you can't. But it's saying you get to have this framework that allows you, that are kind of the basis or the yeast of smart financial decisions. Um, and, and I can just tell people in the last six months, it's been a, not been a good six months for investors in the stock and bond markets. But there are plenty of things you can do to, over one's lifetime. There's probably things you can do today, and we've talked about some of them, where you can actually turn negatives into positives if you have the right framework of thinking, the right historical perspective, which most people don't have, and I've always thought of a long-term historical perspective that's needed. It's kind of like vitamin C. The body doesn't store it. So that's why you really need a good advisor to continuously. I mean, I think my clients probably laugh every time they get one of my quarterly newsletters that I actually write by hand uh, or type by hand. I guess a better way to say it because it's sort of like saying the same thing every quarter. But that's the whole point. It's the, the historical perspective they're going to need to survive that get stored in the body. So I try to provide that, and I know Dave and Ryan do the same thing. Well, let's uh, see. Where are we at here? Ten fifty. Okay, we're ten yeah. fifty. I don't have the seconds clock. Uh, Paul, let me uh, give some kind of artificial good news. Uh, people have lost probably their their bond portfolio, their stock portfolio, but look at their mortgage. Uh, if you have a long term. Uh, Three percent mortgage. The present, the, the cost of you of your mortgage has gone down probably as much or more than your bonds have gone down. So there's always good news. Not only that, chances are you've also had appreciation uh, from your. Uh, you know, most homes have appreciated pretty nicely. Well, guys, I see we're at uh, ten fifty nine, which is the time to sign off. I appreciate you listening to Paul Rudy's On the Money Radio Show. David, thanks for kind of holding the fort down. I'll be back for the next show, and uh, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to Paul Rudy's On the Money here on DWS, paid for by Rudy Wealth Management. You can join Paul on the second and fourth Tuesdays of each month here on News Talk 1400 and 93.9 FM. The views expressed in this program were those of the host and the guests and not necessarily those of the station. You're listening to News Talk 1400 and 93.9 FM WDWS Champaign-Urbana, a Champaign multimedia group station.